Good morning, everybody. Welcome to CTK. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn it and keep it open uh, at Leviticus. Um, we're going to be mainly focusing on um, three chapters, Leviticus 18 to 20. Um, I will read from the middle of this kind of main section of exhortation about how God's people are supposed to be living. Uh, I'll read from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. This is kind of the center of the whole thing. Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 9. This is God speaking. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you that you have given us clear wisdom and direction about how uh, to honor you in this world, how to build up other people, how to care for your creation that you've made for us uh, and for your glory. Lord, help us to see in your law uh, a wonderful treasure of ways to show our gratitude to you for sending Jesus to fulfill and keep the law perfectly on our behalf. Uh, we long to be like him, but most of all, we long to show our gratitude for him. We pray in his name. Amen. So we've been going through Leviticus at warp speed for the last few weeks, and we are now at a section of Leviticus that is all about holiness. Uh, in our world, we kind of tend to use the word holiness, and then we tend to think it means something like staying away or being stuck up or being disengaged and condescending. Think of uh, somebody we would call a holy roller. Uh, but ultimately, we need to see uh, that holiness, and the way the Bible thinks about holiness, is ultimately about life. It's about fullness of blessing. Uh, this blessed life, the Bible says, Leviticus has been saying, this blessed life can only be found in a restored relationship with God. Remember, God's very nature is to be alive. He can't not be alive. And so this section on holiness is now the final section of Leviticus. The first section it has three basic sections to it. The first section was all about how only a pure people 
can approach a pure God because his life overwhelms death. Uh, And then we've been seeing that in order for a pure people to approach a pure God, God has given his people blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice that both purifies them, makes them clean, and also rescues them from danger. Sin is both a dirtiness problem and a danger problem. We need to be rescued. We need to be cleansed from our sin before God. And so all of this came to a head last week in the second section. It's shorter than the other ones, but it's a second distinct section. Last week in chapter 16, this is that central ceremony called the Day of Atonement, which was all about God providing a way for His sinful people to come back to Him, uh, to have direct access to Him. But we've been saying that all of this has been pointing forward to the much greater work that Jesus is going to do later on the cross. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, both to purify us and to rescue us. But then also it's about what he does in his resurrection and then after his resurrection. Because remember, after the resurrection, he goes directly into God's presence in heaven on our behalf so that we can also go there with him to be with God. But the amazing thing is that as wonderful as this purification and this rescuing and this opening of access, as wonderful as all those things might be, they're not really the point. The point of being forgiven, the point of being rescued, the point of being purified, the point of having access open to God, the point of all of it is so that you can actually go to God. The point of it is so that you can be in His life-giving presence, so that you can be in joyful relationship with Him. Or to put it very simply, the point of all of this is holiness. The point is to go and to be with a holy God and to become more and more like the holy God to share in His life. That's what this is all about. That's what this whole second half of Leviticus is talking about. And it's very, I'm going to do this thing again like I did a couple weeks ago on the weird purity laws. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking generally about all these laws, and then we'll spend a section at the end more specifically. But we need to understand, the first thing that is really important for us to understand to make sense of many of these rules that sound quite strange to us today um, is that they are about how God's people are supposed to be living as a holy people. That they are given to a people who have already been welcomed into relationship with God. That's very important to understand. This whole movement of the book of Leviticus, which in many ways is the whole movement of the Bible, from sin through sacrifice into God's presence, that's uh, the first half of the book, that's getting us ready for what it now should look like for God's people to live as His people. So these rules are for people who have already mercifully been received into God's presence by the blood of an innocent victim. These rules in the second half of Leviticus are not for people who are striving to become good enough or holy enough for God to accept them. These are for people who have already been accepted. That's what the Day of Atonement was there to remind you of, that God has already opened the way for you through the blood of another. And now God says, I'm going to give you rules about how to live. 
Now, here's something else that will help us understand these laws for us today. Applying these laws today will often look quite different than it did for Israel back then. Sometimes, to help us make sense of all these rules in the Old Testament, theologians divide them into three basic categories. There's, there, the line between them is sometimes a little blurry, but this is, I think, a helpful way to think about it. We talk about three categories of the Old Testament law. We have what we call the moral law. These are summarized in the Ten Commandments. They'll sometimes be applied in the Old Testament through more specific things, like um, if your ox gores somebody to death, you are responsible for that and you need to deal with it. So that's an application of this one of the Ten Commandments about murder. Um, and so these laws, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, they apply to everybody in history for all time in every place. Everybody is um, obliged to obey the Ten Commandments directly. So that's the first category. The second category, we call that the ceremonial law. These are Israel's cultic rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices. That's what Leviticus is talking about a lot. We no longer have to do these things because Jesus has come as God's final sacrifice. He's come as God's final priest. But they still, all of them help us to understand who Jesus was, who Jesus is, what he was doing, what he is doing, what he will do. So you have moral laws. They apply to everybody all the time. And you have ceremonial laws. And then you also have this third category. We call them judicial laws. They are the laws that deal with Israel's unique status as a political body living under God's direct rule in a certain time and place. Uh, they, too, point us forward to Jesus and to what he's doing in the church, uh, but they uh, also have these basic principles of justice that we can apply to differing cultural and political situations at other points and places in history. But the point that I'm trying to make to you right now is that all of these laws have some kind of application for today. They all apply under the new covenant of Jesus, but they don't always apply directly like they did for Israel under the old covenant. They all apply, but they don't all apply in the same way they used to apply. I'm going to move through them pretty quickly, but as always, I would be happy to talk with you after the service or any time, really, if you have any questions, if you read through it this week and you thought, what is that talking about? I can't talk about every single little detail today, but come ask me afterwards. I'd be happy to talk. The basic idea behind all these laws about the holiness of God's people is that God is himself distinct from his creation. God is ultimately independent. He doesn't depend on anything. God lives from himself. He doesn't derive his existence from anything or anybody. God can't not be alive. Those are all ways of expressing this idea that God is distinct from everything else. Because this distinct God has graciously brought a sinful people into relationship with him, he now expects and empowers them to also be distinct from the people around them. God is infinitely, ultimately distinct. He's brought people into relationship with him. He now expects them to be distinct, and he gives them the power to do it. That's the basic idea behind these laws about holiness. Over and over and over through these chapters, God says, I have called you, Israel, out from among the nations, and so now I want you to look different than they do in all of their deathly chaos. 
Chapter 17, the first chapter of this section, is full of rules about blood and sacrifice, where and when you can offer them. Uh, But it's helping us to transition from the rites of the Day of Atonement into the more day-to-day rules of what follows. Uh, There in chapter 17, God tells the people, he says, I don't want you to be worshiping the false gods of your neighbors. Uh, And then he opens chapter 18 by reiterating this. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 2, he says, I, emphatically, I am the Lord your God. Uh, And so you can see here in the beginning this emphasis on how God is theirs and they are his. They're in a special, exclusive relationship. And so God repeatedly says all through these laws, I'm yours and you're mine. And so therefore I expect you to look like me, to live distinctly like I do. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 3, he says, You shall not do like they do in the land of Egypt, which is where the Israelites have just come from. And he says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, which is the land where they're headed. They're in between. They're in the wilderness. God says, Don't do things their way. He says, You only can do things my way. Because again, he says over and over, I am the Lord your God. God says something similar in chapter 20. He says, keep all my rules and do them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. All of these rules about holiness in these chapters, God is saying they are the opposite of what Israel's neighbors have been doing for hundreds of years and that because they've been doing these things for hundreds of years, God very patiently is letting them do it for a very long time. But eventually God says that I am going to pour out my judgment on them. I'm going to cause the land to vomit them out so that you can go in and have that land instead. God is the ultimate landlord in the Bible over the entire earth. And so he's saying there are serious consequences for rejecting my ways. Uh, They bring upon you things like death and chaos. But there's also, God says, serious blessings for embracing my ways. You will have things like life and and stability and blessing. And so God says over and over and over again, I want you to look different than everybody else because I'm yours and you're mine. And so because of that, because I love you, because you're mine and I'm yours, I want what's good for you. He says holiness is about being distinct, but it's not about being distinct for the sake of being distinct. It's about being distinct so that they can enjoy blessing and life, so that they can do things God's way and find order in the midst of chaos. This is very much behind the New Testament teaching about Christians and their lives. Uh, Christians, too, should look very different than the people around them. Uh, The Apostle Peter, uh, we read this earlier, the Apostle Peter quotes from this section of Leviticus. He says, Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in everything you do. Because it's written, quoting Leviticus, you shall be holy because I'm holy. Uh, Later on, Peter will say this. He says, you are now a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has given you life and blessing and light. And so now God says, live in light of that. Live distinctly compared to what I brought you out of, compared to what everything else looks like. And so not just for Israel, not just for the earliest Christians, but even today, God still is calling his people to be distinct from those around them. Not for its own sake, but so that they can enjoy and reflect 
and spread God's life and blessing. Sin ruins the entire world all around us. It ruins all of our relationships. God's law is good for us. It's good for our world. It's good for our relationships. It's good for our society. These chapters are covering all kinds of areas of life, which is part of the point. Holiness is not just for Sunday mornings. It's not just for uh, spiritual activities like praying and reading the Bible. Holiness is for everything. Uh, There's a holy way to do everything. Uh, But I want to show you five overlapping areas where God calls his people in these rules to a distinctive, holy way of life. First, starting more broadly, these chapters show us that God's people should have a distinctive view of God. A distinctive view of God. We've already said that in chapter 17, uh, we hear about how important it is that the Israelites worship only God and that they worship him in his way. In the ancient Near East, everybody but Israel had lots and lots of gods. Uh, They were very happy to incorporate each other's gods into their various religious systems. Uh, And so not just today, but even back then, uh, just about everybody thought it was not just weird, but also offensive that the God of the Bible demanded exclusive worship. God doesn't even just say in the Bible, well, sure, uh, all those gods, they're fine out there for those people, but I want you to worship only me. Now, the Bible is very clear. Those gods aren't even real gods. Those are fake gods. Those people are worshiping nothing. You can only worship me. I'm the only real one. Lots of people in the ancient world said, what's wrong with you? That's offensive. Don't you know that we're all happy to worship each other's gods? In chapter 19, there are a bunch of reminders that the people can't just have any old god that they want. Uh, they can't make images of God. They can't have little statues of, or idols of God. Later on in that chapter, God says you can't copy uh, the occultic and spiritual practices of your neighbors. And so God says, don't cut your hair, don't mark your bodies in the ways that these neighbors like to do when they're worshiping their gods. He says, don't consult with wizards, don't consult with mediums uh, to contact dead people or predict the future or somehow harness the power of the spiritual realm. Chapter 20 ends with a call to execute anybody who might be wanting to lead God's people to cavort with dark spiritual realms. God takes this very seriously. Uh, Today, Christians are still forbidden from trying to blend the worship of the one true God with uh, worshiping alternate gods, practicing alternate spiritualities. We must only worship the one true God and only worship him in the way that he wants to be worshiped. Uh, We might be tempted, of course, today to worship other gods besides Buddha or Vishnu or Odin. Uh, Probably very few of us today are struggling with whether or not to worship those gods. Um, But the New Testament says there's lots of other things that can be your gods. Jesus repeatedly warns us against making money our God. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that being jealous of what other people have, that that's a form of idolatry. Uh, God calls his people to a distinctive view of him, a distinctive worship of him, exclusive worship only of him. The second thing here that these chapters show us is God calling his people to a distinctive posture towards other people in general. A distinctive posture towards other people in general. You see that in the middle of chapter 19, which I read to you guys. Uh, Don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't slander each other. Chapter 19, verse 17, uh, forbids any kind of hatred or bitterness toward any kind of person. Uh, Instead, really interestingly, those verses in Leviticus call you to go and talk to people and work out your conflict with them, uh, to even frankly speak to them. Call them out sometimes if you have to. Uh, Verse 18 summarizes all of this as loving your neighbor as yourself. 
conflict resolution, peacemaking is neighbor love, according to Leviticus. When Jesus was asked what God's law was all about, he said first, it's all about loving God with everything that you are. And then he said, it's also uh, about what Leviticus 19 says. It's also about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving people like you already, of course, love yourself and think about yourself. Uh, The literal heart, literally and theologically, the heart of these laws about holiness is love. This verse about loving your neighbor is at the center of all of these rules about all kinds of things. Our culture throws around the word love quite a bit these days, uh, but we need to understand that God's law tells us what true love really is. Uh, It's not just whatever I want. It's not just whatever feels good, uh, but whatever God says is good. Whatever God says is what's good for other people and for myself. And sometimes uh, today, just like back then, sometimes what God says is love, the world will say, is bigotry. And sometimes what God says is destructive, the world will say, is love. We can only truly love others to the extent that we are loving the God who is himself love. And loving him, of course, means listening to what he says. Now, getting more specific, these chapters also show us that God calls his people to a distinctive posture, not just towards all people in general, although that's part of it, but now to a distinctive posture towards the weak. A distinctive posture towards the weak. It's scattered all throughout chapter 19, uh, but to summarize it, God first says uh, that we should have concern for the disabled. He says, don't be cruel to the deaf or to the blind because it's fun and they can't do anything about it. But rather, he says, you should show deep concern for them and that this is really a way of fearing him. It's a way of revering him who's always watching out for people who cannot watch out for themselves. Similarly, all through this chapter, God says that his people should be particularly concerned to care for the poor. He says that farmers should leave a little bit of their harvest behind so that the poor can come behind them and gather some of it for themselves. I think the basic principle here is that God wants his people to be concerned about people more than they are about maximizing financial gains. Uh, Part of it too, of course, is that God wants God's people to help the poor learn to support themselves and their family. He also says here that legal proceedings should not be biased for or against the poor just because they're poor, but that judges should treat people as best they can impartially on the merits of the case, not contrary to a lot of what's going around today, not based on whatever class or category you belong to. God says don't defraud or rob or cheat the vulnerable, people like orphans and widows and immigrants, um, which of course was an easy to do because people in these kinds of positions can do so little about it. God says don't do that, even if you can get away with it. I'm watching out for them. God also says that he demands here just balances and measures, think scales and weights. Uh, The basic idea there is that business and trade should be conducted with integrity, even if you can get away with not doing it. God says don't uh, do half-truths in your business. No watering down your products. Don't put your thumb on the scale. Uh, Don't rob the poor by printing lots of money uh, so that your friends all get rich and their savings evaporate. Distinctive posture toward God, distinctive posture towards people generally, distinctive posture towards the weak specifically, but now also specifically a distinctive posture toward the family, toward the family. 
A couple times here, God calls his people to show honor to their parents or to the elderly. Uh, He says, they raised you. They have a lot of wisdom that you don't. They know a lot of things that you don't. Uh, And in their old age, uh, they have a lot of needs to be taken care of just like you did when you were a little kid and they took care of you. It's very different from our world today, isn't it? Uh, We celebrate defiance towards your parents, towards making your own way in the world. We roll our eyes at old people and how inefficient they are and how needy they are. We bristle uh, at uh, their apparent drain on our resources. But God says that honoring your parents and honoring the elderly is actually a way of honoring him. Another way that God calls his people to a distinctive posture of the family is this repeated emphasis on sacrificing children to the false god Moloch. He pops up a couple times in these chapters. This is something that Israel's neighbors did in the ancient Near East. They would literally burn up their children as sacrifices to this god in a desperate attempt, although a very well-intentioned attempt. They had good reasons for doing it uh, to gain greater prosperity and security. Kill your children and this God will make you prosperous. Tragically, Israel would end up following their neighbors in this practice. Some of the Old Testament's strongest condemnations are reserved for it. And today, of course, people still sacrifice their children. They sacrifice them to the false gods of comfort and career and freedom and fulfillment. It happens in all kinds of ways, but worst of all, it shows up as abortion. Nearly a million children a year in America are killed for the sake of false gods. God hates murder. He especially hates the murder of the weak and the vulnerable. I was sobered this week reading these chapters in Leviticus, thinking all these threats about how murder causes the land to become polluted so that it vomits societies out. I was just sobered thinking about what an amazing testament to God's mercy and patience that our society exists still. God wants his people to have a distinctive posture toward the family. And now, on a related note, we finally see that God wants his redeemed people to have a distinctive posture toward sex. Chapter 19 is the central chapter of this section, but on both sides of it, you have very similar chapters that are all about sex. Most of these chapters are concerned with keeping it as a good gift from God within its proper bounds between an unrelated man and wife within marriage for life. Sin ruins everything, but as many of our own stories can uh, testify, we can see with particular horror and pain how much damage sin does in the realm of sex, and by extension, how much damage it does in the realms of marriage and family and parenting. Uh, To take one simple example, consider how differently, even just in our own society, consider how differently our classrooms and our housing projects and our prisons, consider how differently they would look if men and women controlled their sexual desires and were surrounded by a community of people who would help them direct those desires into the bounds of a lifelong marriage. How different would our society look if those things were true? God's law is good for us. Many of the practices forbidden in these two chapters were widely embraced and practiced by Israel's neighbors. Then and now, this is a very strange 
and even offensive way to live. The New Testament echoes the same prohibitions when it comes to the sexual lives of Christians. Uh, Much of what these chapters are teaching about sex deals with not crossing or mixing boundaries that should not be crossed or mixed. And so they say things like no incest, no polygamy, no polyamory, no sex before marriage or with somebody else's spouse or with animals or between men or by implication between women. God calls many of these practices an abomination or depravity or perversion. He says repeatedly in these chapters that they make us unclean. Uh, you can see here in these chapters what, something we've already been talking about, this emphasis on moral impurity being much more serious and foundational than ritual impurity that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, these chapters repeatedly say that these practices uh, not only did, but would cause the land of Canaan, the promised land, to vomit out its inhabitants. Uh, this practice, this distinctive posture, these distinctive rules around sexuality made Israel very strange and offensive back then. It made Christians very strange and offensive in the first century. It makes Christians very strange and offensive today. But God says, again, this is what's good for you. This is what's good for the world. This is where you find life and blessing. The chapters have been showing us, these laws have been showing us that God's ways are the ways to life. They're the ways to order and wholeness. These are the ways out of chaos, the ways out of death, the ways out of misery, no matter how loudly or proudly the world might proclaim its support for many of the things that lead into this death and chaos. Some of us have done these things. Some of us are doing these things. Some of us really struggle with temptation toward many of these things. And so one of the things I want you to hear this morning, if that's you, is that there is atonement available for you. That there is cleansing, there's a washing, that there's also rescue, there's redemption available for you in the death of Jesus as God's final sacrifice. But even if you are a Christian, uh, this is not just for people who are not yet Christians, even if you are a Christian, Uh, you will continue to struggle with sin, even very serious sins. Uh, But we need to remember that repentance is a lifelong process. Uh, We need to remember and really believe that there is real hope of meaningful change. Jesus loves to welcome needy and broken sinners over and over and over again into his presence, into into his family. And so we need to remember that these rules are given to a redeemed and a forgiven people. They come on the heels of the Day of Atonement, uh, where the people of Israel literally would see all of their sins, all of their transgressions, even uh, the really big ones, not just the little ones, the really big ones that were going to cause the land to vomit them out. They would see all of those sins being placed onto a goat and carried away into the wilderness, never to return. Every year, this amazing reminder that God can forgive all your sins. And today, we see and we know something even better than a scapegoat wandering off into the wilderness with all our sins. Today, we see and know that Jesus is the one who ultimately bore our sins on the cross, that Jesus is the one who suffered all of God's judgment for them. Through Jesus, God has made us 
his very own. He's our God. We're his people. And that's always, the New Testament makes this point a couple times. This is always what sex and marriage were meant to be pointing to. This exclusive, loving, abundant, fruitful relationship with God. And so it's in the joy and the forgiveness that God has already given us in that relationship that you actually now find the strength and the power and the motivation to earnestly pursue holiness, to enjoy the life of God himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace in placing all of our sins, the little ones and the big ones, onto Jesus. Thank you for your mercy and your grace in sending our sins off into the wilderness by putting them on him and pouring out your judgment upon him in our place. Help us to see that as we consider things like the Day of Atonement so that we might uh, uh, pursue holiness not from a, a depressed, begrudging heart, but from a joyful heart. Uh, that knows how much you've given us. Give us real power to change in whatever we're struggling with and whatever we're tempted toward. Help us to be a community, a people, a family of people uh, who don't just live in a distinctive way, but also encourage each other and help each other in the midst of sin uh, to pursue you and to enjoy your life. We need so much help. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.